Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Ghost Spider Groupies, the podcast dedicated to Gwen Stacy of Earth 65, also known as Spider Gwen and Ghost Spider, where we review her comics, discuss news, and give our opinions about all things Gwen 65. I'm Abigail. And I'm Pax. Today, we are joined by a special guest from the Comics Collective podcast. Do you want to go say hi? Hi, I'm Dallas. Do you want me to introduce myself, or yes, please? Yeah, tell tell us tell us about yourself. Tell us, uh, yeah. All right, perfect. Uh, as was said, I am Dallas from the weekly comic book podcast, The Comics Collective. Also, tweeter of all things Boss Baby and Dune Worm on Twitter. Um, I yeah, I'm a huge Spider fan. I love Ghost Spider, Spider Gwen. And I'm very excited to talk about her and her supporting cast with you two on this episode. Awesome. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Love the podcast. Love the tweets. Uh, love the boss babyfication meme. Um, <laughs> I all, honestly, all I feel bad because people are like, why do you do this? I'm like, because there's a giant advertisement for boss baby two at my home subway station where he's like laying nude with some like little strappies on. I'm like, why are they trying to sex sell me this boss baby movie? And so you all just have to be the recipients of me working through why on earth that exists. I'm so sorry to hear that you have to deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's um yeah. Uh so on that note, let's get into uh this week's podcast. So uh, to begin with we usually do the week Gwend update. And we, we don't have a huge amount to uh, announce this week, but we do have to say that the King in Black Gwenham vs. Carnage trade paperback is actually on sale. It did uh, it did go to print, um, so after a couple of delays, which is nice. So if uh, you haven't uh, got that physically, we recommend ordering that if you want to support the book. That's a good creative team support, and uh, it's a very good comic. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's the news for this week. Um, and uh, yeah, so... Uh, getting into this week's arc, we're reading Gwenham. So, uh, as listeners of the podcast would know, we've been reading through the main Spider Gwen comics. What we are doing is picking up from the Predators arc, which we did, I say, a couple of weeks ago. Um, that doesn't really include the, the break we've just taken, but uh, a couple of episodes ago. And this sort of ended with Gwen being sent by Matt Murdock to Madripoor to find Harry Osborne, who'd been lizardified, and they'd found this way of curing him that would also create venom at the same time and it happened as as that that's how it happened and uh venom was created and that's how it ended with harry cured and the venom symbiote sort of standing over gwen and at the same time quite tragically captain george stacy was put into a coma a coma into critical condition over in here um after an attack arranged by matt murdoch from the rhino while he was in a prison cell. So if you want to uh, listen to that episode, I would recommend it if you haven't already, because it is, it's, it's, uh, it pretty much leads directly into this. Uh, so uh, do listen to the Predators uh, episode, do read the Predators arc. Uh, and if you want to know where to read this arc, um, we will put links in the description to uh, the reading list we're using, uh, which also includes a little bit on, you know, the best places to read, such as Marvel Unlimited, uh, and a Comixology link as well, so you know what it looks like if you want to order it physically or if you want to read it on Comixology. So what we're going to do now is we're going to do a little preamble 
a little preamble, a little uh, synopsis of what happens in the arc so we're all on the same page and uh, we'll just yeah, we'll start that now. Gwen prepares herself to bond with the newly created Venom symbiote, only for it to skip past her and make its way to Wolverine instead. Initially slashing at it to try and fend it off, it bonds with him, with his abilities allowing him to manage its toxic nature, transforming him into a sort of samurai-like, uh, clad in all black look, which he goes on a rampage through the city and through the police, which were at the scene. At the hospital, Foggy Nelson calls Murdoch, reiterating that he wanted Captain Stacy silenced, not dead. But Matt quips that his coma is nothing compared to what could have happened if George stood trial. Gene DeWolf is evidently becoming more and more suspicious of Nelson and Murdoch's scheming, which sends Foggy into a panic. But Murdoch is unbothered and reminds him to make sure that Captain Stacy's room is heavily guarded and then puts the phone down. He has arrived in Madripoor and among the aftermath of the fight is able to find and retrieve Gwen's portal watch from her unattended bag. Kitty tries to reason with Logan, but he activates the sonic device that incapacitates her and her phasing, but it backfires, forcing the symbiote off him also briefly before Gwen turns the device off to save Kitty from the pain, despite her request for Gwen to leave the device running. Gwen and Kitty rally to take on the still-venomized Logan together. They briefly share a thought for Harry Osborne, who is still unconscious and will presumably now get legal assistance from his father now that he's not a lizard. The two catch up to Logan in an alleyway, carried by Gwen, Kitty phases Logan from the symbiote, unnerving Gwen as she notes that it's all too easy. Logan regains his senses and apologizes to Kitty and the two flee, leaving Gwen to try and use the sonic device against the symbiote. To her surprise, the device fails to destroy the symbiote as it begins to lunge towards her and bonds with her. Murdoch arrives to gloat, noting that sonics only affect the symbiote while it's bonded to a host. He smugly claims that deep down, Gwen wanted to become Venom as the symbiote cocoon engulfs her. Gwen promptly yanks Murdoch's phone with a web line before emerging from the cocoon, clad in a dark version of her costume, with Face It Tiger playing through the earphones of the phone. To Murdoch's surprise, the symbiote has little effect on Gwen's mental state, with the sound of the music helping them march to the same beat in her words. He gives a sarcastic congratulations before revealing he stole the portal watch, mocking her for getting distracted as he opens up a portal to the comatose Captain Stacy's hospital room. With Murdoch's voice in her ear telling her that it's all her fault, Gwen rushes to her father's bedside. She becomes consumed with grief and when the police enter the room, Gwen viciously dispatches them and attempts to kill the wolf who pleads that her death won't help George. She spares the wolf, swearing vengeance on those responsible as the symbiote's voice takes over. Hobie Brown finishes spray-painting a Spider-Woman mural, at which point a returned Punisher shows up, asking him if he has a permit. Hobie remarks that Stark Books will probably paint over it later, and claims that Spider-Woman is a hero now. Punisher says otherwise, causing a dismayed Hobie to leave. He remarks that he just paints what inspires him, challenging Castle to name a story where the hero isn't dead. Now on the hunt for the rhino, Gwen recalls how not long ago her tough choices used to be so easy as the symbiote's voice talks back in her head. She angrily inquires with the Enforcer's gang about the rhino's whereabouts. Gwen quickly escalates the situation and violently dispatches them all. She even comes close to killing Fancy Dan but stops herself playing a song on the jukebox to steady the symbiote's effect on her. 
this has all been going on, the Mary Janes lead a missing persons campaign for Gwen, with MJ berating any naysayers who think that she is this new venomized vigilante. At Jack's pub, Rhino mocks Murdoch's assumption that he's afraid, reiterating that he incapacitated Captain Stacy as asked. But Murdoch knows that he's hiding since Spider-Woman is out for revenge. Rhino threatens to blackmail Murdoch about him being the kingpin unless he gets paid more money, but Murdoch reminds him that George was important to the NYPD and Spider-Woman, and his offer of protection is running out. Gwen webs Fancy Dan upside down from a flagpole to interrogate him further, slowly cutting the line as the symbiote tells her to kill him. Otomo suddenly appears, informing Gwen that the rhino is no longer protected by the hand and she can find him at Jack's to exact her revenge, much to her incredulity. Gwen leaves Fancy Dan hanging on the breaking web line as the Punisher covertly watches from afar. Gwen furiously bursts in on the rhino and Murdoch at the pub, but Murdoch portals away, leaving rhino at Gwen's mercy. Gwen brutally beats down the rhino as Murdoch-aligned SWAT show up and the Punisher too. The police release tear gas, ready their batons, and start filming the fight, Gwen realizing that it was all a setup to discredit her father, the symbiote snarling to disregard it as she continues to strangle the rhino. Punisher suddenly strikes Gwen with a sonic baton, briefly separating her from the symbiote as he uses his gauntlet to blast the rhino, killing him. As the symbiote rebonds to Gwen, she is incensed that Punisher stole her revenge and screams in anger, but the Punisher and police flee the scene. At the hospital, Uncle Ben rants about Foggy Nelson's incompetence, wondering what to do next. Aunt May tells him that they need to find Gwen, the key to Spider-Woman's identity, and ending this madness. Reflecting on the fight and recent events, Gwen is miserable about not being able to kill the rhino herself, wanting to do so more than anything. She realizes she is becoming a monster herself and wants to rid herself of the symbiote. At the grocery store, Gwen laments how her appetites are out of control and finds that no amount of food sates her. She witnesses the bodega bandit robbing the place and follows him out of the store. She says she's tired of having to deal with him all the time. Bodega bandit cries that he never wanted to become a criminal but became addicted to his lifestyle. Before Gwen can land a killing blow, she notices one of the Mary Jane's missing posters and leaves, much to the bandit's confusion. Noting the incident at the bodega, DeWolf notes how it was odd that Spider-Woman didn't turn in the bodega bandit this time, and it's more concerning than Punisher waging war on Murdoch, telling Detective Boyle that they're going to call the Mary Janes to look for leads. Gwen asks Reed Richards for help breaking into S.H.I.E.L.D.'s prison to find Cindy Moon of Earth-65. Reed is suspicious about Gwen's new behavior, however, so Gwen reassures him that she's not going to hurt Cindy 65, but rather ask her for her help, and she's owed an explanation for what Cindy did to her with the spider bite. Reed teleports her into the prison. Gwen uses the symbiote's camouflage ability to sneak upon the security guards guarding Cindy's cell and knocks them out, opening the door to find Cindy meditating. In spite of Cindy's relative calmness, Gwen gets angry and demands to know why Cindy ruined her life. Cindy explains that the time she wasted half her life recreating the radioactive spider, that she could have used it on herself, but was terrified of it failing, choosing to release it where it would eventually make its way to Gwen. Gwen attacked Cindy further, spiteful of her answer, but Cindy adds that she was also afraid of her success, before informing Gwen that the symbiote's voice is actually Gwen's own, advising her to let go of her vengeance towards Murdoch. Guards break in, and Gwen dispatches them while Cindy returns to meditating, reassuring Gwen that she can find another way if she is willing to. 
At Gwen and Betty's apartment, MJ relays the plan to post flyers all over Manhattan, but Glory tells her to rest, MJ snapping that Gwen needs her help. Glory notes if that's the case, then Gwen's been on her own longer than the band realized while Betty texts the Falcon for help before the Parker show up. He notices Felicia Hardy in a cell and asks how she ended up in there. Reed informs Gwen that he can't keep the portal open for her much longer. Gwen offers to burst Felicia out, but she refuses, remarking that Murdoch has already won since everything is under his control, or soon will be, as Gwen departs in defeat. Falcon is dismayed over not being able to participate in Spider-Woman's war against the Kingpin, being assigned a list of global threats to handle instead by director Peggy Carter. He sends a text to Captain America to find Gwen and replies that she's already on the case. Back at the hospital, Foggy talks to the comatose Captain Stacy, lamenting that he initially refused to believe that Murdoch was capable of being corrupt before admitting that he let Murdoch push him to that point. At a bar, Officer Richie Rogers loses a game against Montana and demands another round, but Montana refuses, kicking Richie out for bragging about what the kingpin owes him. Richie mugs some street gamblers as Gwen lists the negative aspects of his police career, noting that she's been watching Richie for several days to find any redeeming qualities about him, only for the symbiote to influence her into killing him. Gwen uses the gummy spiders from the symbiote to scare and taunt Richie about his guilt. It appears looming over him and dangles him from a rooftop, interrogating him. She monologues about how powerful she is right now, but feels so weak. Punisher at the same time arrives mocking her speech, when immediately lashes out at him, stealing her revenge earlier from the rhino, while thinking back to what Cindy also said regarding letting go of her. Punisher gives an eerily similar speech to Gwen and proposes that they take down Murdoch together, much to her frustration, and proceeds to throw a violent tantrum. After she calms down, the Punisher throws Gwen a burner phone, remarking that he'll be in touch with her. Gwen spares Richie, giving him a final warning to turn himself in, or else she'll kill him if he decides to run. Richie calls Foggy Nelson from a phone booth asking for Murdoch's help, unaware that he's also on the call with Foggy. Foggy assures that he'll send someone, only for the hand to hold Richie at knife point with their katanas in the booth. Uncle Ben unsuccessfully asks about Gwen's whereabouts and gets into an altercation with a careless man who bumps into him, slamming into a wall and punching it. As the man runs away from Ben, Gwen crawls down from the wall, empathizing with Ben about his feelings before revealing her identity to him. At a concert venue, at an empty concert venue, I should say, Gwen addresses the Mary Janes and the Parkers about the challenges of keeping her double life a secret, citing that she had too many responsibilities. The symbiote joins in, adding that she needs to do whatever it takes to be whole, and that they're too angry to be scared anymore. Murdoch keeps a dying Richie at his apartment, begging Murdoch to let him die, but he's focused on the portal watch making noises. He tells Richie he's still living because he needs someone to confess as he delivers his backstory. As a child, Murdoch and his mother Maggie were involved in a radioactive waste accident, where she accidentally blinded Matt, but the radioactive waste gave him heightened senses. His father Jack refused to throw a boxing match, resulting in his murder by Maggie Thugs, who were then killed by Matt using his senses, attracting the attention of Stick. Stick trained Matt as his student to fight against Silvermane and his gang, who allied with the Hand, before getting killed and Matt killing those ninjas in retaliation. Matt was later raised by the then-leader Samura, joining the hand, pointing out that they were the closest thing he had to having a purpose, but the power caged him. 
The hand started to fear Murdoch, so he was sent away to New York, where he became Wilson Fisk's lawyer and stole his title and empire, but eventually fell into a depression, hating what he had become. He almost committed suicide before witnessing Spider-Woman swinging by the window, realizing he wasn't the only one with power. At the same time, Gwen apologizes to her friends, not expecting them to forgive her, but she declares that if her humanity has to die, she needs them to know why she did those things. Gloria and Betty attempt to reassure Gwen, while MJ voices concern about her statement of having to die. Gwen reiterates that Murdoch is a monster, and that she has to become one in order to defeat Murdoch permanently. The band tries to reason with Gwen, but Uncle Ben tells her that she has to pursue this to make their losses count, since she has been granted this power. Now she has to live up to the responsibility. Murdoch recounts to Richie about how he was obsessed with sinking Spider-Woman down to his level, wanting her to be corrupted like him, before slitting Richie's throat. The Mary Janes and Uncle Ben argue over Gwen's decision with each other, now no longer immediately focused on Gwen. Gwen's phone from the Punisher rings, remembering his proposal to kill Matt Murdock together as his echolocation alerts him to the Punisher's presence. This all happens at the same time as Watcher 8 catches Watcher 65 sleeping on the job again. He berates him for neglecting his duties, but promises not to report him to the council. 65 complains how dark events have become in his reality as 8 tells him that he'll support him whether he likes to or not and proceeds to deliver a long-winded explanation about how alternate timelines work across the multiverse to 65's disinterest. 8 asks if Uncle Ben really asked Gwen to kill Murdoch, which 65 nonchalantly confirms, distressing 8, claiming they have to do something that 65 reminds him they only observe. An injured Punisher trudges through Murdoch's apartment, leaving dead hand ninjas in his wake. Otomo volunteers to stall Castle, but Murdoch says he'll handle the situation concerning Otomo, as he'll risk exposing himself as the kingpin and undoing the hand's work. Punisher blasts the door open as Murdoch tells Otomo that he's running the show and he decides when it's over. Castle prepares to fire, but Gwen bursts into the scene, much to the Watcher's surprise. Gwen snarls that Murdoch is her victim, but he cuts the web ensnaring him as Punisher fires another blast. Punisher grows tired to Murdoch's ridicule, and he attempts to fire another blast, only to be webbed by Gwen. The two argue over who is supposed to die. Castle is angered at Gwen judging him. He fires again, but a surprise from Captain America blocks it and punches him out after he persists in blasting. Murdoch delivers a mocking thanks to Captain America, but then she punches him out too before turning her attention to Gwen, apologizing for not helping her sooner, swearing that Murdoch will face justice when she's done with him. Gwen is enraged by Cap's promise, snarling that Murdoch owns both sides of the law since he's the kingpin. Cap asks for Gwen to stop, but Gwen keeps attacking her. Cap thinks the symbiote is making Gwen sick, leading Gwen to break her arm using the symbiote's tongue and knocks her out, stating she has to kill Murdoch. Gwen grabs Murdoch by the throat, telling him to shut up and die as she prepares to drop him over the side of the building. Murdoch boasts that he has succeeded in sinking Gwen down to his level, but Gwen angrily tosses him aside, refusing to be like him, asking her if she didn't enjoy embracing her inner darkness. At this point, the portal watch suddenly activates, sucking Gwen into a wormhole as the watchers attempt to figure out who activated it, noticing that Gwen is on another Earth. Gwen regains consciousness to see an alternate Gwen Stacy in front of her. And that has been Gwenum. Yeah, that was that was probably the longest synopsis we've done. Yeah, that was. Yeah, this was a pretty heavy arc. Like, wouldn't you say, Dallas? 
It was. That was great. You two are both so talented. I was enraptured. I've read it and I was like, wow, what comes next? Tell me more. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, um, as always, before we move on to our thoughts, we always like to tally up the amount of times that Gwen cusses. Dallas, we call it the Stacy swear jar. <laughs> I like it. So, uh, yeah, throughout this whole Gwenham arc, like you'd think that being bonded to a symbiote would make you even more salty, but she only swore three times during this whole arc. All right. The first time was in 25 when she was talking to Otomo about Murdoch relinquishing his protection from the rhino. Gwen's like, is he kidding? He has to be fucking joking, right? Right. And then issue 27, when Castle proposes to take down Murdoch together, she's like, you want a fucking team up? Yeah, those were similar situations, actually. Those were, like... And then, you know, lastly, that's the very final line in um, this arc when she sees this variant of Gwen in front of her that's just using Loki jargon. She's like, what the fuck? Yeah, um... (laughs) I think that's actually one of the bigger differences between like this Gwen and like classic Gwen is definitely the degree to which which Spider Gwen will use profanity compared to um, com- compared to her. The, their manners are very different. Yeah, yeah, because you know six one six Gwen is all nice and sweet and kind. This Gwen though, salty. This Gwen would have had some choice words for the Green Goblin on that bridge. Very true. Very true. And I'd also like to point out that this seems very reminiscent of Aunt May's reaction during uh, the end of Homecoming. <laughs> the, uh, you know, what the fuck? And then abruptly cuts to the credits. Yes. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's another cliffhanger um, shock ending here, actually, which, which we sort of had in the last arc as well, I suppose. Because, um, like, I think if this was animated, like when Gwen says this line, I think it would just abruptly cut to the credits. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that would make the total so far for the Stacy Swear Jar thirty-four dollars. Well, there it is. That's uh, that is it's impressive. Good for Gwen. She can buy one and a half of her own trade paperbacks. Oh right. Oh wow, dollars <laughs> really don't go very far, do they? No, they do not. Oh, that is because yeah, what is it like twenty bucks or something, depending on how many issues there are. It's not even. It's depending on how much Marvel wants to. To make you cry that day, honestly. <laughs> I've picked up four issue trades that are $24, and I've picked up six issue trades that are $24. There doesn't seem to be much rhyme or reason to it. Really? But I, yeah, I, $34 seems nice. Yeah, it's, um, I, I'd, I'd have you know that 34 pounds, uh, British pounds, would, would get you a, about, about three trades worth out of that, actually, as it happens. <laughs> You're like, well, our money is not broken over here. <laughs> And the 34 bucks in Canadian money, um, that's about the cost of um, the entirety of Spider-Man life story and trade. That's rough. That is mm, brutal. That is rough. Mm-hmm. R.I.P. Rip to a real yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um, so getting into this arc, like, um, one of the things, like, straight off the bat, uh, it's very, uh, and we sort of mentioned, touched on it a bit there with sort of the length of the synopsis, it's very dense. It is very... Uh, event and character sort of heavy um and uh it, it's it's got a lot of um I like even the fight scenes uh, are sort of overlaid with with a lot of sort of captions with gwen pondering her uh, choices and stuff so um it's it's yeah it, it's it's a lot to it's a lot to process i think this one 
It definitely had a lot of My Chemical Romance is coming through those headphones vibes. And I was like, I'm here for it, Gwen. I get it. Very much. Uh, the angst is is dialed up to 11 with this arc, for sure. Because Gwen has... um, Yeah, she doesn't really have anybody she can go to for, for real help at this point. Uh, particularly with the father in the way... Uh, in the place that, that that he's in, so so yeah, so she's just sort of stewing in all of the uh, in all of the angst there. She definitely does a lot to isolate herself in this arc, and it's really sad to see. You know, I think one of the big strengths of any Spider book is the supporting cast and the family around whoever the protagonist is. Yeah, absolutely. Especially since you know most spiders. They think that the best thing to do is isolate themselves from their loved ones because they don't want to put them in danger. But at the same time, you know, they need their support. Yeah, for sure. And so Spider-Man and Batman have the same problem where they're like, I must do this alone. And they're like 30 people behind him. Like, why? Why do you have to do this alone, dummy? (laughs) Like, it's called the spider fam and the bat fam for a reason. Yeah. So it was it was a little frustrating, especially with. Gwen, where she was isolating herself from all the people in her own world, but then being like, man, if I could get in touch with those people from alternate universes, I would really have some backup. I was like, Gwen, turn to your people here. Cool it. Yeah. And the thing is, like, she sort of does eventually, but it doesn't really work very well. Like, um, it sort of breaks down quite kind of quickly there. Because it, once it gets to the Maguire era, her supporting cast, it's kind of would the right word be diminishing? Uh, th- that's true. That's true. Uh, I think I think with Maguire's books, that's that's true. But I was thinking more like in the scene where um where she gathers everybody and says, "Oh, hey, I'm I've been the vigilante this whole time," and and then they all start arguing with each other over what what, what she should or shouldn't do, and um I, I sort of like thought that like like they weren't like I think Mary Jane was willing to sort of really get into it with her, um but but overall everybody there was sort of very um, they didn't really stand uh, like as a good emotional sort of support team for her too great there. And uh, remember that um, MJ was actually the first one to figure it out, even with Gwen's denial. I did like that thread through this arc of MJ just being like, so we're all aware that she's she's Ghost Spider, right? She's Spider Woman. And everyone's like, nah, you're crazy. And it's like, well, no, she was right. Yeah, no, it's... um. Def- definitely MJ's intuition is on point there and um, it, the, the pivot, the hard pivot that sort of happens where she suddenly has to start going around like berating people who do call Gwen Spider-Woman when she becomes uh, like, like when she gets venomized so that it doesn't look bad for her anymore. Um, it's, uh, it's quite amusing almost. I definitely, I feel like Mary Jane is the most true to form with the 616 in Earth 65. I feel like everybody is skewed pretty differently and then mj is sort of just the same character again but given not an opportunity to speak more regularly than she's currently be gi- being given in 616 yeah I, I i yeah no definitely i think uh, i think mj65 bears a lot of similarities i don't think she's as um she definitely has more of um more of an edge i think yeah she's uh, got more of a temper here in this universe I think, to be fair, though, there's more to compare her with in 616. I mean, what we do get of Gwen is great. What we do get of Betty Brent is great. But it's nothing compared to the the reams and reams of paper of Mary Jane characterization, you know? 
So I think there was a little bit more of a blank slate to fill in with all these other characters on Earth 65. Yeah, yeah, they. Um, I, I would, I'd posit that that Spider Gwen is is a functionally different character from Classic Gwen, um, and and that it's kind of it's it's really hard to sort of properly compare the two past past like aesthetic choices mm-hmm. uh, and and how they fit into the supporting cast. Like obviously they both have Captain Stacy as a father, and they both have a sort of connection to Peter Parker. But like as actual characters that make decisions and choices, they feel very very different. I would agree. I'm just wondering, um, you know, since Gwen's going through this dark phase, kind of like, I'm just going to use Eddie Brock instead of Peter Parker. Do you think if the two of them met, they would bond over each other because of their dark personalities initially? Well, I mean, first things first, Eddie Brock would adopt her because he he feels an incessant need to be a dad, right? This is true. And so she would definitely be Gwenum Brock in about five seconds. But I think, especially following Donny Cates' Venom run, I think Eddie Brock would have a lot to to teach Gwen about like being aware of your dark edges, but not letting them control you. You know, that could really help this character. Because um, during um, this whole arc, Gwen seems almost as unhinged as Eddie Brock, but, you know, she's not a bona fide villainess. She's not eating people. I do think she sort of... She sort of comes close to it a few times. When she was coming for my boy Fancy Dan, I was like, oh, don't cross me, Gwenum. Don't cross me. Don't hurt Fancy Dan. Yeah, and, and she, she really messes him up. Like, she leaves him on that line to dangle, and the next time we see him, he's got, like, like a cast and um, and a sling, and and he could have died. Like, like she left him on that line to, to sort of fall, and he could have he very much died there. Like, um, And, like, she could have even, like, broke Jean DeWolf's neck if uh, she knew her own strength. Yeah, and I think... Uh, well, I mean, DeWolf talked her down there. She decided not to. But yeah, like, she was gunning for DeWolf. Fancy Dan um, obviously definitely tried to kill the Rhino. Definitely nearly killed Matt Murdock, obviously, at the end there. Uh, the Bodega Bandit, they almost seem to hint that she's about to eat the Bodega Bandit. Um, <laughs> uh, very briefly before she sees that uh, missing person. Post. I think there's a lot of moments where, like, if a small thing hadn't happened, she, she absolutely wouldn't. She absolutely would have gone through with the kill. And, and it would have taken a much darker turn, I think. I- I'm just wondering how exactly visually it would show her eating people. Because remember in 27, when she threw that tantrum, she briefly grew... A mouth, but not that quite large. Yeah, like the sense I got was that there was sort of the symbiote itself was holding back, like it could grow more symbiote looking stuff, like it could have a mouth, or, or you know, or even what, like when it, uh, when she gets punched by Captain America and she reacts to that, like it grows an extra bit, like it always felt like there, there was another stage to it almost. So it would, it would look different if, if she let it do that. You'd just say that the symbiote's just holding back? See, I'm going to go in a completely stupid way and say it would look just like... Remember those hoodies that could zip all the way up and they'd have a face on the front that kids would wear? Yes. It would look like that if she bit them. It would just be one of those zip-up hoodies. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, that's that's quite funny. Yeah, that's... Um... Can we just talk about how awesome her costume is anyway? For sure. It is quite cool. I actually, I love your drawing of the Gwenum costume on your Twitter account, Abigail. 
Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, that's just something I did for um, a Patreon that I'm supporting on. Patrick Brown, you know, he does all of the uh, Marvel merch and stuff. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. I think you really capture the dynamism of that costume. It's such a fun way to not abandon the the iconic Spider Gwen outfit, but make it Venom. I think I think it's wonderful, both your drawing and the original design. Right. Uh, thank you. And I even put up a poll the other week about. Um, what's the superior costume and the results came in. So 56% of you think that classic ghost spider is the superior costume, which means that the remaining 44% is Gwenum. Shame. Shame. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I'd say like the spider Gwen outfit uh, is probably one of perhaps, you know, the best uh, sort of outfits come out of modern superhero comics. And to sort of, you know, even to, to achieve parity with that, let alone sort of, in my opinion, top it, um, is, is really a, a sort of an, an extra feat they sort of added on top here with the Gwenham outfit, because it does sort of, it keeps sort of the characterizations, like it keeps the chucks, um, it keeps the sort of, uh, and it sort of leans more into that sort of rocker look with the jacket and um, the spikes um, and, and also like finding a way to incorporate the hood as the mouth um, so that she's still wearing a hoodie. It was all very, very great. I love it. And, and the idea of having it running as a seam with the tongue, it's all excellent stuff. Excellent, excellent stuff. Like, I think if we were talking about functionality of the costumes, then Gwenum would be the superior one all the way. With the, with the tongue? Like uh, functionality, because you know you got the tongue, you got organic webbing, you got shape shifting, camouflage. Oh yeah, and power set for sure. Yeah. See, I think what's some of the magic of the Gwenum costume is that it captures what that original black suited Spider Man costume does, where you take an iconic design and you somehow condense it even further into just basic iconography. And again, like I'm, I am a original. Spider-Gwen costume fan. I'm an original red and blue Spider-Man costume fan. But you you can't deny the black suits are bad to the bone. You know? You see them and they're instantly striking. They instantly carry a tone with them. And I don't think there's been a costume redesign since the black-suited Spider-Man that has come as close to improving on perfection as the Gwenum design, honestly. Yeah, it's... um. Yeah, no, I think, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, yeah, I guess, I guess along similar lines, I'm a bigger fan of Black Suit Spidey's look than. I mean, it, um, it does go so hard. Yeah. yeah. I, I find, I find the, the amount of webs on the classic Spider-Man to be a bit too busy. So I, I, I'm grateful for, for any Spider-Man outfit, which, which reduces that. Like try being the one to have to draw those webs. Right, I have that in mind, and I'm, th- I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking like they've got to sit there doing the thatching instead of doing more detailing on the panel, and it's like, yeah. I'm just thinking about that drawing that Tobey Maguire does of that super webbed up suit in Spider-Man 2002, and I'm like, man, my lazy butt. If I was sitting there, I was like, I'm just gonna come up with a cleaner design. This is taking way too long. No way. No, no. no the artist's best friend, if you're digital, is the copy paste tool. You can just. <laughs> I like it. My whole job is copy paste, so I I feel that. Yeah, that's one way to get around the webbing. Right. Um, it's uh, yeah. The the because uh, because I mean I think even the webbing on the regular Spider Gwen outfit that's quite reduced, um, compared to classic sort of Spider Man outfits as well. Um, but it is completely gone from from the Gwenum look. 
I'm just picturing this scenario in my head where Gwen transforms into Gwenum for the first time. That um, ACDC's Back in Black is just playing. Oh, it's nice. I feel yeah, like any symbiote story has ACDC in the background at all times. Or or um, when she's thrashing around the Enforcers, holding out for a hero is playing. That's often playing, though. Like, yes, I... Yeah, that's... Uh, I can see that with the jukebox. Y- yeah. No, like, um, no, while she's thrashing the Enforcers, that's just the background music that, um, that the, uh, music scorer person would just put in there. Nice. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. Seeing her trash on the Enforcers felt like a personal attack to me. I was like, how did they pick my obscure favorite Ditko villains that show up like six times? How are they the ones that had to get beat this bad? Oh, no. And then just uh, just imagine holding out for a hero playing in the background. You know, you can't go wrong with Bonnie Tyler. Holding out for a hero improves any scene, frankly. It's all just notes on Shrek 2, but it's still good. Yeah, I think it's mostly because, you know, most recently it was playing while Sylvie was killing the Minutemen. True, true. It got a lot of discourse out of that. Uh, are you in Enforcer's stand then, would you say, Dallas? I honestly, I think I probably am. I don't know anyone else that feels a love for Fancy Dan like I do. I think he's the dumbest hero- character of all time. And that that's like a term of praise for me, you know? When I look at a concept, like his name is Fancy Dan, and he's a mobster that is just bad at being a mobster. You can't get better than that. That's so funny. And Montana, his cowboy partner, forget about it. It's amazing. And yeah, what about Ox? See, Ox, that seems a little bit more classic Spider-Man villain, you know, like big man named after a big animal. I respect it. I think they're a great little triplet, but there's some real magic in the name Montana for a cowboy and the name Fancy Dan for a little fellow. Like, I wish my name was Fancy Dan, you know, call me Fancy Dal. That would be great. Come on. (laughs) Change that to your, that's your new Twitter nickname, Fancy Dal. Fancy Dal. Honestly, I'm here for it. Fancy nice. Dal and the Enforcers. Yeah, um, he's a uh, yeah. There is they get quite a bit of play. They they appear. Uh, I want to say at least twice. two or three times. Twice in this arc. Do they appear in? Have they appeared before? I feel like they've appeared before, but I can't put my mind. I can't. I can't remember. Nope. First appearance. Oh, okay. Right. Well, and that's actually why they invited me on was for the Enforcers. That's that's what we're here to talk about today. So welcome to the uh, the Enforcers podcast episode one. We open on Fancy Dan just being Fancy Dan. And it's wonderful. <laughs> Fancy that. Oh, oh. Oh. Oh, my God. I really think we got something here. <laughs> That's, um, yeah. But you're going to be entering the courthouse a little bit later. I'm very excited for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what else do we got here? Um, we also got a very unique Venom symbiote. Yeah, I thought this origin for the Venom symbiote was really intriguing, honestly. Like, what a creative way to introduce the symbiote. Yeah, and, um, you know, we, we I, th- I think we sort of touched on it quite a bit during the, the Predators arc stuff, but it being something that Gwen has created specifically, and it's sort of like that whole... Um, and also the way they say it up in a way which was like only Gwen can bond with it and then immediately uh, sort of had a bait and switch with Wolverine for like 10 pages all very very cool stuff 
but I think that the fact that um you know it's supposed to kill someone who's not Gwen, but it didn't to Wolverine. I'm thinking that's maybe his healing factor fighting off the radioactivity. You know, like how Deadpool's cancer and healing factor they're fighting each other. That's why he's scarred. Yes, I could I could buy that for sure. I did think it was it was fun to have Wolverine in a Spider comic with him being such a classic team up for Spider Man to have that flipped to still have Wolverine in the universe and in the story, but as an antagonist, it was cool. Yes, um, and he's a yeah no he's an interesting sort of villain. He's kind of kind of kind of a sad sort of story for him here because it doesn't really get much better for him um, over the course of this. And I think like I like. I like how the um his venomized form it's not like a regular venom looking thing like it's not like it's not giving him teeth and a tongue and stuff uh it's it's made him a samurai and uh which which is what he is so um i thought that was really fun like it's not it's not limited to uh making like the sort of de facto uh, sort of venom look. It's it it actually is just sort of making the look that is appropriate for that particular character. Yeah, especially since you know this symbiote, well, Earth sixty five symbiotes anyway. You know they're supposed to amplify what the host is really like. Yeah, like uh, the the thing which this drives home is that it's not like a foreign agent that's come into the body and has taken over it, like a possession situation or. Um, like a brain parasite or whatever it is it is not smart enough for that like it's definitely got like it it has sentience but it's actually your amplification yeah like they have that very sort of like cindy has this very philosophical sort of discussion with gwen where she sort of says that you know like these feelings these thoughts these emotions these aren't like new things that you're having these aren't new feelings uh these are just you know, the, these are just things which you're feeling and, you know, by circumstances, even without the symbiote, would be very, very amped up at this time uh, point. And, and the sort of using the symbiote as an excuse to, like, think that they'll go away, you know, that won't fix those emotions. That won't that won't help her work through those emotions. Yeah, especially, you know, since um, the symbiote's voice, you think it's actually its own, but really, you know, it's it's still Gwen's. It's just you know, to the audience, it makes you feel like that the symbiote is sentient, but no, that's just Gwen. Yeah, yeah, they do those, uh, they do like little, um, so obviously the regular captions for Gwen are in white, um, and then they start doing these little pink captions, so Gwen will be thinking sort of to herself about, you know, like, um, you know, what she should do, what she shouldn't do, and then the pink caption will come in with like the sort of the evil or the selfish option or whatever, and the presumption is that that's the symbiote. The symbiote is, is suggesting evil thoughts to her, but actually that's just the most amped up thought that she's having at that point in time, and it isn't really like the symbiote thinking and telling her what to do. That That's just Gwen really struggling with, with what to do, um, rather. I thought they did a really good job of introducing the symbiote when that sort of play would be the most interesting. Like just when everything goes the most wrong for Gwen Stacy, she gets the symbiote to amp up those negative emotions. Because like, if they had introduced this earlier in the story, I don't know that she had enough bad stuff going on to to warrant those kind of thoughts coming from inside of her. And so I thought just from a craft standpoint, that was really quite good. Like maybe Peter's uh, her guilt over Peter's death would have been enough to push her over the edge. 
Um, yeah, I think like yeah, like Edge of Spider Verse number two. I think she was probably in the sort of a similar place to where she is now. Uh, say just like pre Edge of Spider Verse number two, pre her debut. But um, and I think like just touching back on what the way they say it up, it's not it's not like a contrived thing. It's not like the, all these things happen to happen at once. It is like a specific uh, exacerbating factor within the story, which is Matt Murdock, um, who is arranging all of these things so that they happen all at once. Um, like he calls in the police when the police show up. He calls in Foggy Nelson when he needs Foggy Nelson to do stuff, and he and he, and he has the Rhino do the thing, uh, all at the same time. And with the exception, I think of the Punisher, just about every other sort of agent, you know, like, like person making decisions within the story that is affecting Gwen is is doing it w- with some influence from from Matt Murdock. Um, so it's it's a big it's a big sort of factor here, and that, that and and he arranges it that way so that the Venom symbiote would would spawn at this point. Uh, speaking of Matt Murdock, do we finally want to get into a character study of him? Yeah. Yes, please. Yep, because that's Dallas. That's what you're here for. <laughs> All right, go crack my knuckles. Would you call yourself a, a professor of, of Matt Murdock? Um... He's certainly, aside from Spider-Man and Batman, because, you know, I'm a just a, a normal old white male. Those are my two guys right there, you know? Um, but Daredevil comics have definitely been a huge part of my relationship with comic books. Right when I was very first getting into them, I heard the the Frank Miller Daredevil run was a good place to start with good comics. And I've pretty much read everything since then. So I'm very attached to the character of Matt Murdock and concerned with his portrayal and things. And so this twist on Matt Murdock in Earth 65 has always been really compelling to me because while this kind of Matt Murdock wouldn't resonate very well for me, on Earth 616, it feels like a place the character could go. And because it's on this alternate Earth, because it's, again, to use the low key terminology, a variant of Matt Murdock, I'm comfortable to explore the character this way. And it's really refreshing and fun. Would you say that a um, Matt 65's Nexus event would be uh, being taken in by the hand? I honestly think it goes back as far as his mom being the one that was struck by the car. I think it takes away some of his heroic agency and makes him feel more like a victim. I think Matt is somebody that, I mean, Matt Murdock is Catholic um, guilt personified, right? And so I think one of his saving qualities in his own eyes is that no matter how we may feel about himself, he is a hero and he can externalize, he can look at his actions outside of himself to make himself feel good about himself, right? No matter how crappy Matt Murdock feels, he can go save somebody and it'll be a bit of a balm to him. And I think that goes back all the way to his origin story. But with his mom being the one that died, it it robs him of that a little bit. I think um I, I think what I, and I don't I don't know if it really substantively changes uh, the story, but but the way that that she specifically is the one that blinds him by accident to be just just so tragic like it makes me like really cringe for the whole situation just 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 so like watch it so you watch the panels happen and she puts like hands up to his face to feel it because she's been blinded um and and that is the act which which blinds him i thought was just sort of really i don't that that's that's not it's definitely not how it happens in the original origin story right no because you know um 
um, originally he pushes a man out of the way in front of a, a passing radioactive waste truck, and then, you know, it spills. You know, I always thought that origin was really far-fetched, but whenever I walk around Hell's Kitchen, I would not put it past that neighborhood to just have some radioactive waste going by on a truck. I feel like that's, that's one of the most fun things about living out here is every crazy Marvel thing, I'm like, no, nah, I could see it. It's not that far-fetched. No, but did you know uh, Pax here didn't know that Hell's Kitchen was a real place until a few months ago? Yes. I can assure you it is a real place, Pax, and it is an interesting place. Yeah, they, they really they really just named a place Hell's Kitchen. That's that's the thing they did. They they called it that. Yeah, I guess it's what the cops named it back in the 70s when they were assigned it as a beat because it was such a bad neighborhood. They're like, oh man, we got to go. Like They're like, oh, it's... The city, they always say, oh, it's hotter than hell out here. And they're like, well, what's the worst part? Where would be the hottest place in hell, the worst place in hell? And so they named it that neighborhood, Hell's Kitchen. And they've tried to like rename it things over the years, but it just never sticks. Everyone's like, no, that's Hell's Kitchen. Like, No matter how it ebbs and flows as a neighborhood, it just, oh, the name stuck. That seems so sad. It's funny because like you read Daredevil comics and it's like, Oh man, this is the crime center of the whole place. And like, no, it's not. It's where all the theater people live. Like everyone <laughs> that works on Broadway lives in Hell's Kitchen. So you go in and you're like, well, this is just, uh, there are rainbow flags everywhere and Daredevil, you know? Like, I want to see that version but, of the um, Daredevil comics. But remember that the MCU even calls him the devil of Hell's Kitchen. So it's fitting. That's true. It's true. I, yeah, man, I, I would love to see the the current, very gentrified Hell's Kitchen show up in Daredevil comics so he can wrestle with that idea. Uh, yeah, I was, I was, I was going to say, like, that's more like the current state of it after, after, like, the urban sort of, like, gentrification of the area. It's, you know, it's different from how Hell's Kitchen was originally conceived within Daredevil comics. It depends on what Chip Zdarsky wants to do. That is very true. I feel like New York City is an organic creature in Marvel Comics. It's just whatever the artist wants it to be at any given time. Yeah, it's um, yeah, I'm, I, 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 you know, I feel like it's a, it's a very comfortable backdrop, I think. But, but it does, like you say, it changes a lot, um, depending on how it's, it's drawn, I guess. Yeah, but yes, Hell's Kitchen, very real place and a very fun neighborhood to be around. Nice, nice, yeah. And um, with with this arc here, you know, Matt Murdock has been appearing since the very first sort of debut issue of Spider Gwen doing his thing. But this is the first arc where they actually give him a flashback backstory and also have him explicitly say out loud, "What I want to do is corrupt Gwen Stacy." Because like up until this point, he kind of just dances around it. He doesn't really say what his whole shtick is. Um, but but this is the arc role that sort of happens. And um, it's uh, it's I think it's a, it's a really sort of interesting flashback because it's um, it does become very very apparent that his story is uh, paralleling Gwen's in many ways and how uh, the choices he's taken are similar or could be similar to ones which Gwen uh, is taking or could take and and that sort of whole dichotomy is what has linked the two of them and and really he's not driven by like power or money or um 
like some insane supervillain scheme. It's more just along the lines of the whole sort of Darth Vader shtick of uh, wanting to uh, corrupt the main character there, uh, which is which is sort of the direction that they they take him in as a villain. And remember, he even uh, he even planned to commit suicide before seeing Gwen, because you know he was just in a dark place. He didn't know what to do anymore. I think his desire to drag down Gwen rings very authentic to. I mean, I maybe it's a bit too much of a peek behind the curtain, but like I was raised really Christian, and I think it's it comes with its own specific type of baggage. Where if you're doing poorly, according to your own central morality, you have the option to fix yourself or try and make everyone else around you more like you so you don't feel quite as guilty anymore and so i felt like it rang very true for this matt murdoch who's made decisions that his morality deems incorrect to want to pull down someone that he sees as someone that keeps choosing the right like i thought it was really nice to have that explicitly said where he's like i can't be the only one that was corrupted by power I thought that was a great way to villainize the character, but keep him in his in his classic characterization. Yeah, yeah and I think that you know this version of Murdoch probably would be at odds with a six one six Daredevil because of their opposing views. Well, I think for me, that's what makes it so fun is that he really does serve as sort of a dark mirror to the Matt Murdoch of six one six. I think. We're seeing right now in the ongoing Daredevil book, Matt has put himself in a sort of purgatory because he made a decision he wasn't happy with, right? Sort of the push and pull of Daredevil comics is that Daredevil regularly is more human than a lot of the other superheroes around him where he makes mistakes, but then he actively just makes poor decisions. But then he has to like, he has to beat himself up for it and he has to sort of make atonement for himself for his shortcomings and so this matt murdoch just feels like somebody that made enough bad decisions that he had to externalize that sort of atonement right yeah especially since remember that 616 is a devout catholic but i'm not sure if murdoch 65 i don't know what his faith is i think i I would defer to 616 in that characterization like and and the language he uses uh he says i i needed a priest uh, at one point here, when he's he's uh, he sort of confesses all of this to Richie Rogers, I think. So um, it would be still Catholic, but not devout. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, yeah, I, I'd imagine in upbringing he'd be the same. I think um, Catholicism is an interesting bag of wor- can of worms because it's a kind of religion that even if you don't ascribe to it anymore, it's a part of you forever. You know, it's got this whole culture around it. And so I think that this Matt Murdock is an interesting version of that where, yeah, I don't, I don't see him going to mass, but I do see him still having the lessons from his mom and dad in the back of his head, you know, and sort of having those that is sort of like, I hate myself fuel is kind of the vibe that I get from this Matt Murdock. And again, he was able to take, we see that he was about to take his own life and then he was given a scapegoat to point that hatred towards in Spider-Gwen. And what I found interesting to point out is that, um, you know, his mother Maggie in this universe, instead of being a nun, she's an actress and paralegal. That is interesting. I 
I know I love the relationship between Matt and Foggy in this book as well, because in 616, Matt still drags Foggy along, you know, he, he drags him into the superhero world. He drags him into being more heroic than Foggy might want to be. But in this, he drags Foggy down a dark path and towards being more villainous than Foggy may want to be. And I thought that was a fun inversion. Yeah, no, and I feel I feel really bad for Foggy in this because obviously he's um, I mean I mean obviously he's he's not a good person by any, by any measure, uh, at least in these sort of couple sort of last couple of arcs he's been making decisions in. But um, the 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 relationship between him and Matt Murdock, like that sort of one sidedness, uh, it, it it's really much more um, it's much more toxic for him, and it's much more um, you know, clearly he's clearly taking this huge toll on him, in in terms of uh how he feels about everything he's doing and every scene he appears in he is just very sort of ridden with anxiety over these decisions he's making but but every time he sort of goes to matt uh, and every single time matt sort of you know like you say he drags him along with it um which is you know i just yeah i felt kind of bad for him here even though he's doing very very bad things but you know at least though this foggy he still has a conscience yeah he certainly feels bad about the things that matt's getting him to do and I don't know. It's just, it's an interesting inversion of the characters for me. I sense the introduction of Matt Murdock on Earth 65, way back at the beginning of Spider-Gwen. He's been the most compelling character for me because I feel like to me, he's the one that seems so different, but at his core is such a similar character to the character I love over on Earth 616. Yeah, I think I think he's remained the the archetype for all of the um, like Earth sixty five twists has been the way they did Matt Murdock, which is to sort of do do a character with very similar principles, but to sort of twist them in in a sort of different direction, and we we see that from a lot of different characters. But uh, yeah, like you say, Matt Murdock's probably probably the best example of that. Yeah, and I. I think it's also fun just having him with his face out red suit like he had for that little stint in the Wade Daredevil run. I like the character design a lot and it's a fun way to play on sort of what Bendis did by making Daredevil the kingpin of crime, right? Like this, this Daredevil feels like a very loving homage to a lot of the great Daredevil runs. Yeah. And, um, yeah, no, it's it, the whole red suit, red glasses, uh, and red cane with the katana hidden in it. All, all of that whole look. I, I, I need a red suit so that I can. It's just, it's so good. I love that. It is so good. And I'm just imagining if this were ever animated, I'd love Charlie Cox to come back and voice this version of Matt Murdock. I mean, I want Charlie Cox to be every version of Matt Murdock. So I'm here for that. Yeah, it's um, see how uh, No Way Home pans out. Oh boy, oh boy, we can't. Don't say its name. Uh, but uh, Dallas, did you finish uh, all of Daredevil yet? All the show? Yes. I actually only watched the first season. I couldn't get through the second season. Oh, so am I the only one here who uh, just watched everything? You may um, be. I'm a bad Daredevil fan. I said, Jeff Loeb, you're not doing it for me, and moved on. That's fair. I think the I think the first season was. Was the strongest one there, wasn't it? I, I mean, I've I watched the second one. Yeah, season one was my favorite. 
I think that's true for most of the Netflix stuff, to be fair. Um, you start out strong. And... and then there's the rumor that Vincent D'Onofrio is returning as Fisk for Hawkeye. I would love that, honestly. I would love that. Yeah, I am. Yeah, this is a very, very good casting. Um, uh, though, uh, yeah. But we don't really get it. We actually get one panel of Fisk in this in this arc. He makes another very minor appearance. During the uh, flashback scene where he said that um, he stole Fisk's title and empire. Every time he appears, I say, this is the only time Fisk appears, except for this time, and then except for this time, and, and again, except for this time, uh, <laughs> Fisk briefly appears in one panel next to Matt, um, uh, where he got, presumably this is where he gets like backstabbed in some way by Matt Murdock um, and ends up going to prison, if that's right. I would love just that shoot-off miniseries of Matt Murdock betraying Wilson Fisk. You mean like a prequel? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that's um like this the the whole um the whole like uh character the way they've set the character up there. There's a lot of stuff they could get into, but definitely that backstabbing and like the way he um he says uh you when that wasn't enough, I buried my knife deep in his back and took all he had. That whole thing is very very interesting. Um and and how that would have played out and what they're like dynamic would have been like between an allied sort of allied i guess fisk and, and murdoch like that that would be very very interesting to explore but remember that offhanded remark that murdoch said about being grateful he wasn't raised by the alabama branch of the hand yeah i want to know about them w- w- yeah what was going on there like like um, i'm thinking he was raised by the new york faction but um well, maybe um uh probably the hand in other states might operate differently I mean, Marvel, if you're listening to this, I know you are, okay? Give me the <laughs> Alabama handbook. I promise you, I will make it compelling. What, 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 how would... Um, I'm trying to think of stuff unique to Alabama. Uh, Alabama. I'm going to work exclusively off of my knowledge of the few people from Alabama I've met and Jason Aaron's comic, Southern Bastards. That's all I'm going to do. And that I'm going to make the Alabama hand. I see, I see. They all, they all have banjos instead of samurai swords, first off. Right. No, no banjos that that double as uh, swords. Yeah, they, they pull off the banjo, and there's just a katana in there. It's marvelous. Wow. It writes itself. Nice. Yeah, that's, um, that's the hand we need to see Gwen face off against at some point, then I, I suppose. I could, they could work that in there somewhere, I'm sure. I like the Pax is just on the other end of this, like, you are so stupid. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm not. No, it's not. I, think I, 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 I also would like to see the, the Alabama hand. I think that would be, that would be interesting. Cause that, that I remember I, I read this through and I remember thinking that line puzzled me. Like I wanted to see what exactly they were trying to get at with that line. I um, honestly wonder if that is Latour referencing Southern bastards because he was the artist on that series. That would make sense. I remember that on his credits. And so I, and that book very much has like organized crime in Alabama is brutal um, underpinnings. So I think what I got from that was it was just a fun nod from Latour towards another book he was a part of. Yeah, that's, um, 
That would make sense, actually. Yeah. Okay. Because because I I really was actually stuck on that when I was going back and reading through it. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of writers and artists like to sneak in their previous works as much as possible. Like, remember the uh, the Back to Basics arc of uh, Nick Spencer's Amazing Spider-Man. Ryan Otley managed to sneak in a few Invincible stuff. That is true. Yeah, it's one of those uh, one of those things, I guess. So, uh, other things which happened in this run, uh, we got. Um, We've got the Punisher, who has returned for this arc, and he'd sort of dipped for a couple of arcs um, after... I'm trying to remember which one it is now. I think um, Weapon of Choice was the last we saw of him. Yes, so it's been three arcs of no Punisher, and he's now returned, and he's not hes not got a vendetta against Gwen Stacy anymore, but he does have a vendetta against Matt Murdock, and that's his new thing. That's his new thing he's focused and concentrated on, and he tries... Like not unlike Murdoch, tries to recruit Gwen into to sort of his blood feud there, um, and that that becomes their sort of whole thing. And did you notice how disheveled Punisher has gotten since Weapon of Choice? Like his hair has gotten longer, his his facial hair has also gotten longer. I think he's a little bit wider. He's been going through it. To be fair, he's um he's had a rough time of it. Yeah, because you know his wife and kids just left him. Yeah, and and the whole, I, I mean, did he lose his job outright following the events of Weapon of Choice? I think he did. Yeah, that is. Yeah, so he's yeah he's he's much more of a free agent here than what we've seen in the past. I think. What um, are your feelings on this version of the Punisher, or just the Punisher in general, if I can ask? Um, I mean, I haven't read really any Punisher comics. Come to think of it. Um, it's a good place to be. Um, I've, uh, I'm familiar with his appearance in Daredevil season two, which I thought was interesting. I thought that was was very uh, interesting way to approach the character. I, I'm obviously familiar with his portrayal in this comic. I find it interesting how they they make him a cop outright uh, in this, and and use him as the sort of uh, you know as a sort of an example of the most militarized version of law enforcement. Um, of like, uh, and and that's the sort of the, the the way they use him in this book, which I think is like uh, a generally non-problematic use of the Punisher, um, and, and an interesting way to approach him. Although, like I say, he's a bit more of a free agent here, so I don't know if they're sort of booking that trend a bit more. Um, I like how they tie him in with the uh, like the Tony Stark stuff um, in in his backstory, so that he's running around with an Iron Man gauntlet. That's fun, and the way that he represents a lot of the brand of justice that I think Gwen could be drawn to, um, but sort of pushes back against is, is a very interesting dynamic between those two characters. I, I thought. I would agree. I think he's, this is a really good place to bring him back into the story again with, with Gwen's negative emotions being amplified to show her, that it's possible to be like Frank Castle, you know, like it wouldn't be super outlandish for her to make some of the decisions that he has made. I, I think it's a pitch perfect place to bring him back into the story. Absolutely. And, and in the end, like she does like literally answer his call and um, like, go help him. Like, like when he says, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm storming uh, Murdoch's, tower like she does actually take the call there and she does go um so there is a sort of i guess an inclination towards that um absolutely although she sort of 
yeah, she sort of spoils it a bit for him. Like she she grabs Murdoch so that he can't deliver the killing blow, and they end up falling out over that. But I wonder what would happen if they if they had been more coordinated in this attack. Um, I wonder how it would have played out in that circumstance. Because remember, Gwen still miffed about you know, um, well, way more than miffed you know about um his attack on their house. I mean, fair. Yeah, that was um. Yeah, I, I thought there was a. It's very much a big pivot for the Punisher, like, uh, and, and I think it makes it justifies his absence for so long. Um, it is it's a very fundamental change from where he was before, where he was he was very much, um, you know, trying to kill the Stacys, um, to then trying to recruit Gwen in, and he's clearly had time to reflect on the most efficient application of his brand of justice because he obviously has this little like little speech from the wolf at the end of his last appearance where she's like you know you look at this destruction you're causing you know is it worth it how are you any better um than this vigilante if this is what you're doing um and and he sort of you know he runs off into the night after that we haven't seen him since um and and now he makes his return and he he is he's definitely more focused uh, in in and he's not as obsessed, I guess, in, as he was prior. Like he's he's acting more rationally. You know, he when he tries to communicate with Gwen, he's you know he's uh you know he's making coherent sort of statements about like you know like look at look at you know look at what do you have to lose and uh, making a convincing argument from his end. Um, and and yeah, he definitely seems like he's he's sort of reached a, a new phase of his character. Um, which which he settles into quite well throughout this arc. He's also like physically, he's got he takes a lot of damage before he goes down, and I know he's not superhuman, but he's got a lot of shurikens like stuck in him. He's powered by testosterone packs. <laughs> I think it's probably because after his time with the Marines, facing the hand is nothing. He has a shield of toxic masculinity about him. Right. They can't get. They can't pierce it. Right. It's he yeah, he does he does a lot of like off panel the heavy lifting here. Like he defeats the bulk of the hand ninja so that we can have like a, a showdown with like the main characters at the end here without like some grunts appearing. Um and he gets as far as killing Matt Murdock, he kills Otomo. You can sort of see him get blasted, um or Gwen chooses to save Matt Murdock. And then he gets um he gets knocked out by Captain America, is that right? Yeah, um, yeah, and so that's that, and and he he sort of drops out the fight here from here on out, and and yeah, um, he's I think his whole approach here is still secondary to the sort of the push and pull Gwen is feeling between like people like Cap and people like Matt in her life. So I, I guess it sort of reflects the point at which he goes down in the fight, I suppose. I'm just trying to picture, um, what if John Berndahl was doing this version of the Punisher? Yeah, he could do that. He's got the, he's got the energy for it. Um, I could definitely see it maps onto his style of Punisher, I guess. But I don't think he would behave the same way as MCU Punisher. Certainly not, no. No, no, I I would agree that, yeah. But yeah, good use of the Punisher, I think, in this arc. Um, who else did we get? We got a bit of Captain America towards the end. Who just gets curb stomped by Gwen? <laughs> right, and and I was I was thinking about this fight because this is like a it appears to be like a callback to their first fight where Captain America was definitely more of a physical match for Gwen. She like handily defeated Gwen and cuffed Gwen in their first meeting, and this now feels like 
a very darkened version of that where Cap's much more on the back foot, definitely trying to appeal to Gwen's better nature. And um Gwen just breaks her arm. It's yeah, it's brutal. It's really it's a yeah, I feel um I feel bad for, for Cap here. It's it's rough. I think just as a rule of thumb, if you ever find yourself on a team with the Punisher against Captain America, you need to take a step back and assess your priorities. Yeah, um, definitely. And I think um, Gwen does sort of realize that she's taking it too far. Like she has the moment where the sort of the the mask comes down as if as if she's about to like you know be more open, like a come to Jesus. Yeah, but then just says, you know, wrong cap and then and then punches punches her out and, and it's um and then she actually does the rest of the scene with it. it's just her it's just her face and it doesn't feel like like it's the symbiote making decisions. It does feel like Gwen is genuinely trying to weigh the options against themselves here, like does uh you know, is this what she wants to do? And she definitely does not buy into, I think, Cap's position within the status quo here. Um Absolutely, I think this version of Captain America is very much more aligned with the establishment, um, and I think that definitely puts her on a weaker footing when it tries when she tries to appeal to Gwen. Like, uh, do you think if uh, Cap tried to uh, reach out to Gwen sooner, it could have been de-escalated? Maybe, maybe, and and it's something Gwen considered was actually trying to go to to Samantha for help. I think. But but sort of she couldn't bring herself to. But I think as she said no adults or something. I think it was more to the effect of like she didn't like because Samantha sort of sees the best in Gwen, so she didn't want to let her down in that sense. Like she didn't she didn't want to let down the sort of the optimistic view that Cap has of of her, um, and and she's more of a pride thing maybe. I think something that would have sent me is a uh, um. If Cap persisted to keep fighting, if she uttered, I could do this all day. Yes. It just It's all over at that point. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, even with a broken arm, she'll be like, I can do this all day. Yes, that would have been, yeah, that would have been, that would have been cool. I, I think it's, um, I really like Captain America 65, and um, she definitely has a rough time. I think everybody has a rough time of it in this arc, but um, Cap gets called in. Uh, manages to beat up the Punisher, goes to appeal to Gwen, and then Gwen, yeah, Gwen, Gwen does this, and it's, uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's a raw deal there, I think, for her. It's, uh, it's pretty rough. Uh, I guess I, I do have a question about. We've talked a lot about the characters around Gwen and like the character design of Gwenum. What do you think mm-hmm. of, of Gwen getting a symbiote arc this early on in her publication history? Uh- it had to happen anyway because she needed another power source. Yeah, I think I think pretty much everything from the start of the ongoing has been building to this. Like uh, all of these players, um, the like the different sciencey bits of it, like the lizard um, and Gwen's being depowered. This was all done like much earlier in the arc, and I think it was always done with the intention of Lee, and and even like Matt Murdock corrupting her. It's all it's all done with the intention of having a sort of a black suit symbiote arc, and instead of it and i guess we'll get more into it uh in, in the next episode but instead of it being like like a sort of like a one-off thing which it often is right like you have a black suit arc for daredevil and you have a black suit arc for 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 jessica drew spider woman you have you have several black suit arcs uh for peter parker um spider-man uh but for gwen here she doesn't it's not like a it's it's something which stays with her like these things these events the symbiote all of this stays with 
Gwen going forward. Um, and, and it's, it's uh, I think I would say now half of her comics have been written with the symbiote. And, and I think that's, yeah, it's a, it's a very big part of her character now. And I think it fits her better as a power set than the original one. Yeah, because even remember, um, this makes her a much more unique spider than from, this separates her from the rest of the web warriors instead of having the standard set of spider powers or tech. You know, she's got her symbiote. And um, even last week, I tweeted out about how um, if the symbiotes wanted to uh, branch off from the spider office, they should take one with them, too, since she leans into symbiote and spider nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. Um. I uh, I agree that um, yeah, and plus she's really long overdue in meeting Eddie. For sure, I think they'd have some interesting things to say about being shaped by Peter Parker in different ways. You know, it's like yeah. the Peter Parker ruined my life support group. For sure, and and I think uh, the characters becoming infinitely better once Peter Parker got away from them is uh, is interesting as well. That's um. Yeah, that's. Yep. Uh, I, I think there's a, there's a lot of there'd be a good mentor mentee back and forth there, and and also Gwen's version of the symbiote being so unique as it is, like having the unique powers like the gummy spiders, um, and and like the way it specifically affects emotions and little things like that. I think it's all it's all it's all fits in very well with her characterizations and um, the way she operates, which is which is all very good. Uh, but do y'all think that um, I'm just gonna call it the symbi office? became its own thing do you think Gwen should just be there full time um you know I I I don't could be like a joint custody thing like what they do with uh Jessica Drew and the Marvel heroes uh and and the Spidey office uh you know if they had a Symbi office and a Spidey office I imagine Gwen would get bounced between the two a lot um but yeah or like like, a 5149 yeah something like that um the Spidey office can have her every other weekend and they can negotiate for other visitation yeah right yeah, something like that. You know, like different crossovers. You get one crossover, we get one crossover, sort of a type of thing. Um, okay, uh, I think we've got, we've got a few minutes left here. Uh, so, oh, yeah, remember, like when the Watchers explained how uh, alternate timelines in the multiverse worked. Like, did that kind of give you a little bit of a stroke when trying to read it? Um, this is the thing that's always confused me. Like, Earth 8's definitely happened. Like, the history has definitely happened there. And, and this just goes to show how Earth 8 is the worst. And they really they really should stop going back to it with, like... Like, whenever I get to the Earth 8 panels, I'm, like, flicking through them. I'm, like, I'm done. Um, um, it's, it doesn't make sense within the context of the... Like, like time is just not linear at all to these two things. And, and if, if they affect each other, are they different dimensions? I'd prefer it if they were just different points in space, but they're also trying to like thread them together as also being different points in the same timeline, and it, and it doesn't add up in my brain, and it's very frustrating to think about. Because with alternate timelines, like the one that I subscribe to, is that if you attempt to go back in time, it just branches off from the one that like you're a part of. It doesn't change anything about your future. You just created another timeline. I think it's interesting that with Spider-Gwen's inception being in the Spider-Verse event, she's always been shackled to the multiverse in a way that other spiders aren't. And I don't know that that's a positive or a negative thing. It's just interesting that even in her own ongoing, the idea of a multiverse still has to come up. She still has to interact with other spiders from different places instead of just kind of running her own thing, you know? 
Absolutely. I think uh, due to the way that they introduced her, it'd be very, very difficult to go to a status quo where she, she was isolated. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it, you know, like you say, it's, it's a neutral thing. Sometimes it's done well. Like I think whenever they do stuff with Jessica Drew, I think it's very, very good. Um, sometimes it's done not as well. Introducing Earth 8 wasn't as great. The next arc with Earth 617, um, and which we sort of get a hint of at the end of this, I thought was a good use of that. And I, I thought was, uh, was a compelling... Um, use of the sort of the multiverse thing because uh, spider gwen is such a meta character um and is is introduced in such a meta way as a sort of literal ghost of a former character that having a sort of that that framework allows them to very not so subtly explore it um uh explore the character in, in that lens and in the way of like this is you know essentially a what if universe the people we would know from from sort of regular comics would view this character differently because they knew a dead version of the character um and and um but but she's also still on her own earth with her own stuff so there's got to be a sort of a back and forth there and yeah it, it's it's sometimes done well it's sometimes not done well i i like it as a concept um it, it yeah it's just it depends on the implementation and then you know nowadays you have her commuting between 616 and 65 before she got stranded but that's going to be a story for another day yeah and i yeah there's that, that again was done with with varying amounts of success i think if that makes sense yeah yeah, yeah it does yeah um so uh i think there was only one more thing that i wanted to mention that was just regarding uncle ben in this arc and he's just sort of uh, so he's obviously been very embittered, but in this, he he learns uh, Gwen's secret identity, and he his sort of he has the very very dark inversion of the great responsibility thing, in which he asks that Gwen kill Matt Murdock, like that you have great power, therefore you have to use it against, um, you know, you have to make all of the pain count. It was a very very oof. Um, I did not of, like it. You didn't like it? I did not like it. Because it's like, you know, damn, Uncle Ben. Yeah, I definitely, for Spider-Man Day yesterday, I rewatched the second Sam Raimi Spider-Man. And so to get that speech from Uncle Ben, where he's like, I'm just a wholesome grandpa. You gotta <laughs> you gotta do everything you can for everyone, you know? To this Uncle Ben being like, with great power comes a great responsible to kill your enemies. I was like, Wait, what? I think the other dark Uncle Ben that I could think of is, uh, remember during Edge of Spider-Geddon with Spider-Ben and Spider-Pete? Yeah. Yeah, that was also written by Jason Latour. Jason Latour, stay the hell away from Uncle Ben. Um, so I, I, in, in defense of Uncle Ben 65, this is a sort of arc they've put him on that from the earlier comics, you know, it's evident, you know, he was that sort of uncle prior to peter dying but peter dying and his having to live with that having to live with knowing that like the person who killed him is out there all of that sort of weighs on him and he doesn't process that grief properly and it's something they touch on several times and this is the sort of resolution of that in where he is an embittered person and he has lost the compassionate qualities which drove all of the philosophy which we, we see from him in other adaptations. Um, and, and I guess he's in line with, with Matt Murdock in being, you know, fundamentally the same principles, but twisted to a darker purpose. Um, and, um, you know, that's the sort of, if that makes sense. 
Yeah. Yeah. I can see that it makes sense without liking it is what I'm at. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's fair. Um, I do I do believe, are we out of time here? Um, yeah, we're clocking in at um, an hour and a half already. Yeah, so uh, we should uh, we should wrap this this up then, I guess. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, that worked. That worked for um, yeah. So um, I yeah, I, I think I've sort of. I, I think this might be one of my favorite arcs of Spider Gwen. Uh, very very uh, enjoyed. Very much enjoyed this one. I like the amount of um, decisions uh, that are put in front of the characters and how they all uh, affect and bounce off each other. I think is very very compelling because just about every character here gets to make important decisions and explain their own sort of ideas about you know why they do things um and that's really the kind of stuff that i think the spider-man comics are very strong at um and and this arc is probably one of the best examples of that and i really really like it for that uh, also i love the gwenham outfit excellent excellent stuff yeah like the uh, same you know um gwenham was actually uh the first time i actually started to pick up spider-man floppies on the regular and you know this is also one of my favorite arcs of her ongoing, mostly because, you know, it's very dark and gritty and symbiotes and everyone who knows me well, I'm kind of biased towards symbiotes. Definitely. Definitely. I, it's been a while since I've read the Spider-Gwen stuff. I read, I read the ongoing and so it was, but I haven't been reading the Ghost Spider book. So it was fun to be back in this world with these characters and be reminded of just how fun Earth 65 is and how fun all of the supporting cast around Gwen is. Because I really do, like I said at the top, I think the true strength of any Spider book is the supporting cast. And the Spider-Gwen ongoing really gets that, where every character just right alongside with Gwen gets an important arc. They get to make decisions with their own agency, and it creates a really fun, fleshed-out world. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess Dallas, I think your homework would be to read all of McGuire's stuff. Uh, I know I need to. I love the character. I remember the like walking in and seeing the cover to Edge of Spider Verse number two on the shelf, and just being like, "Oh, well, that's cool. I need to know more about that." And ever since, the character's been one of my favorites. So definitely a mark on the bad side of my comic book fan thing is that I haven't been keeping up with her lately. That, that's, that's fair. It's, um, it's, it's, yeah, I, I'd recommend Maguire's stuff. Uh, it's a shame it's ended in the way that it has done, but absolutely. Which is why we're anxiously waiting for the announcement of a solicit. Yeah, it's really good. Um, like I've been making yeah. blood sacrifice. I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, <I'm> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Uh, also, I, thank you so much for joining us, Dallas. It's been a blast. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Dallas. Yeah, it was really awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was. I had a ton of fun. I'm so glad. Yeah. No. Um. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's our show. So next week we are reading the arc, the life of Gwen Stacy. Uh, this is going to be issues thirty uh, to thirty-four. That's the closing arc of this run, and Gwen reckons with the consequences of living with the Venom symbiote and the path that she's chosen in this arc. Uh, we'll get to see what happens with Earth Six One Six and that classic Gwen that we saw there. We're going to put all the links in the description for where to buy and read. Uh, we're also going to uh, again put the reading list link uh, and the Comicsology link to next week's stuff as well. So. 
uh, you know, what that looks like and, you know, where to find that, etc. Um, so if you want to read that and then send in your thoughts on what you think about the life of Gwen Stacy uh, arc, then uh, we can read that out on the uh, podcast. And you can do that at GS Groupies on Twitter and ghostspidergroupies at gmail.com. I also try and put a Reddit thread up, hopefully on time this week, um, for, <laughs> for people to uh, comment on. We'll, we'll, we'll read out any replies on that. So, uh, yeah, thank you very much for listening, everybody. It's been really good. Really enjoyed this episode. And uh, thank you, Dallas. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Check out the Comics Collective podcast if you haven't heard of it. Absolutely. We have a good time. Very good podcast. Thank you yes. so much. Much approved. Very, very good. Love that podcast. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, thanks, everybody. And have a good day. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.